Hello and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This fourth series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of music, and we're really focusing on two aspects of that question. First of all, new ways of creating music, and secondly, how to properly monetize and value music in these changing times. So this week, I'd like to introduce to you a wonderful composer and musician called Ben Richter. Ben was introduced to me by a great mutual friend, uh, Margot Dwahi, and I could introduce him as an accordionist, um, and that would give you probably a totally false impression of what he actually does. Um, Ben's talking to us from rural Massachusetts, so welcome, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you for, for giving us your time. So to begin with, can you tell uh, us a little bit more, apart from the I'm an accordionist bit, about you know what you do and how you got to doing what you do now? Sure thing. Well, I do love the accordion, and I'm sure I'll I'll find the opportunity to uh, bring that in a little bit more at some point. But um, I'm also a composer and a music teacher, and an ensemble director. I have a group called Ghost Ensemble that uh, performs experimental chamber music, and we regularly commission composers and have had a a particular relationship with the music of Pauline Oliveros, whose deep listening philosophy has been a big influence on me as a performer, composer, and, um, and accordion player. Can you can you talk a little more about Pauline Oliveros? Because I don't think most people will will know of her or her work. Absolutely. So Pauline is a, a wonderful figure who can be hard to hard to put in a box. Um, she uh, she passed away a few years ago um, in 2016. Um, she was a uh, an accordionist uh, composer and. Um, I think you might say a philosopher of music. Um, she was a friend of of uh, Cage and some other people who might who might bear uh, that label. Um, but one of the many many things that uh, she pioneered, along with a lot of um, music technology and uh, performance practices, is the um, the practice of deep listening um, and. There are a lot of there are a lot of directions that um, that deep listening goes in, um, and I I wouldn't have time or necessarily be the right person to to try to describe all of them. But some areas that have been really important to me are thinking about uh, modes of listening. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of theories of of listening out there and the different ways that people can listen, but um, Deep listening uh, reminds us about 
global listening. So right now you and I are speaking with one another and I'm trying my, my best not to listen to the plumbing, you know, or the hum, hum of the refrigerator in the other room. But, um, uh, you know, deep listening stresses the importance of listening to the, the totality, the entire space-time continuum of fluctuating sounds, separate from the focal listening that we do when we need to receive information from a particular source. Um, uh, so receptivity to all sound and coming with that non-judgment of sound. So this can be uh, uh, in a musical sense of, you know, sitting in the forest and listening to the beautiful soundscape and appreciating everything that's part of it. Um, but it can also be a, a challenge in, uh, in he here at home where I have a, a frat house two doors down who like to have uh, late night parties and I'm, I'm lying there <laughs> awake trying to, to globally listen and meditate my way to, to, to just bringing their, um, their thumping music into my dreams and uh, accepting it as part of the soundscape. So um, Pauline also led me to the idea of modes of listening as a musical or compositional parameter of sorts. So music composers and performers can encourage or discourage or you might say reward or punish um, certain modes of listening, depending on what, what we're creating. Um, and this really opened a door for me to thinking about um, uh, perceptual aspects of the music experience that can really uh, affect the way we think that can help us um, create new neural pathways and, uh, and ultimately can, can help community grow and transform in a positive way. And that's hmm. really a, a big element of, of what deep listening is about for a lot of people as well. Mm -hmm. So when uh, Margot talked to me about you, one thing she said that really kind of fascinated me and I wanted to dig into here, we've talked about it a little bit before, is that you have... Um, more recently begun to compose and perform music that that uh, documents and suggests climate change. And that was kind of a fascinating topic for me that I didn't even really know how to relate to, how music could could relate to climate change. And can you, and I think it, it it follows on from a bit of what you were saying before. Can you can you go into a bit more detail in that? Sure. So I'd love to start with a little bit of of background and and hat tips because there are a lot of really fascinating uh, musicians who are working with these topics. Um, there's a composer I'm really fascinated with, uh, or, or or a few composers, sound artists, uh, Stephanie Loveless, David Dunn who are thinking about speculative listening, orienting our perceptions toward the experiences of other life forms. And this is in an imaginative way, of course, but we can, we can consider how other animals or even non-animals experience vibration, right? As, as humans do through our ears and the rest of our bodies, uh, which mm -hmm. we, which we call listen, listening. Um, and what, what, 
Lovelace would call a, a cure for her anthropocentrism or an experiment in in empathy toward other other uh, modes of living, other other uh, ways of being an organism on the planet. Um, Bernie Krauss is another uh, person who's done a, an enormous amount of of great work um, in in uh, bringing what it's like to listen um, as as other beings and uh, uh, you know the the acoustic niches of animals and and what ranges they can perceive and so forth. David Rothenberg has done a lot of that work in terms of how uh, making music with animals, how how. Uh, animals make music that is aesthetic and how they can in interact with humans in doing so. But what what one thing that really captivates me about uh, Lovelace's work and uh, one thing that I try to do in a lot of my work is thinking about scales of time and scales of, of movement and um, scales of uh, the effect that that humans can have on the the complex systems that we interact with on on this earth. So, thinking about um, you know trees or mountains or oceans and the timescales that that they operate on, um, thinking about geological history, um, I think music has a a uniquely potent uh, has a unique potential to to help us conceptualize and experience these timescales that are typically outside of what humans can really, I mean, we can of course study them, but, but they're outside of something we can, we can experience or, or so it might seem. Um, and so time, because it's time-based listening can be even more, uh, or music can be even more potent sometimes in uh, through listening than through, through visual experience, uh, and you know, in terms of we have we have linear time scales, logarithmic and exponential information that can be presented coherently through through listening based work, um, mm -hmm. and w whether it's literally mapping things out like like sonification or audification or more obliquely, so audification of of things like seismic waves or planetary magnetic field fluctuations is one thing that also totally fascinated me pretty early on. I remember discovering symphonies of the planets in high school, which was sort of a, a ambient uh, space music made out of planetary magnetic field recordings, you know, shifted into the audio spectrum. Um, so I, re I really think there's a lot of... Um, ways and I can dive more specifically into what I'm doing in my music here that music can help us perceive vast or infinitesimal time scales mm -hmm. uh, which in turn can help us grasp the the complex and urgent problems that um, relate to humanity's role in in the world and shaping the geologic future of the earth and the the time scales that we are currently through, you know, through human behavior compressing into decades that are usually usually millennia, right? Um, and of mm -hmm. course, that's where where climate change comes into comes into focus. Hmm. Interesting. There's I have a friend Kelly Snook um, who is uh, used to work for NASA as a, as a uh, lecturer at Brighton University, but also was the head of technology 
for Image and Heaps Tech Ventures. Um, and she does a lot of work on data sonification. You know, data visualization has been a big topic in, in business for years, but data sonification, particularly in environments where your visual um, senses are f- maxed out, like control rooms and things. Um, and, and, you know, sonifying data gives you another channel into your subconscious uh, is like a fascinating thing for me. But one of the things that that um, is, is really interesting to me is, is this concept of longer timescales of, of music that rewards lengthy listens that evolves gradually in the same way as you know, climate change is a tough concept for many people to get their heads around because it happens so slowly. And so we're used to cause and effect and being able to see that stuff quickly. And I think a lot of people have trouble um, relating to something that, that I mean, it, it's happening very fast in comparison to a decade ago, a century ago, a millennium ago, but it's still very slow in comparison to most people's kind of rapid news feed, data bombardment. Um, and, you know, I found that that idea of kind of slowing down, learning to appreciate and understand something unwraps really slowly, um, a really interesting discipline, particularly in these days of, of like constant bombardment. Um, any thoughts on, on that? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, let me say sonification and, and related work um, I'm, I'm deeply fascinated by. Um, it's, not, it's not something I engage with as, as directly, um, uh, but, but I'm, I'm really, uh, I'm eagerly keeping track of, of a lot of the sonification and, and musification work that people are doing, whether it's in a more presented more, more in a scientific or in an art, artistic framework. Um, where I really am trying to, where I'm really putting my energy into exploring right now is I think modes of listening themselves can be a crucial element of increasing our, our collective consciousness of these, these, uh, what I would call non-human timescales, right. Um, in this case, larger than human or, or, or broader than human timescales. Um, and there are, there are a lot of techniques that I, that I tend to, to use on top of one another, um, in, in my music. I've, I've been fascinated also for a long time on, on music of long duration, as you're talking about. So Mm -hmm. Lamont Young's well-tuned piano was a, a wonderful, uh, discovery for me. Um, you know, it's a, it's a seven hour piece and it's beautiful and it's, it's not too long. You know, there's, if you cut out 20 minutes, you'd miss it. Um, Mm -hmm. so, uh, uh, and, and that, you know, there's other, other composers, of course, um, uh, Feldman is another one who's, who's, you know, got some famously, um, uh, hours long works, but, um, uh, so there's, and of course, you know, Indian classical music, um, uh, all, all sorts of traditions where, where the, the concerts can go on for, for the, the 
the pieces can evolve over the course of hours and hours. Um, so, so the idea of duration and time scale um, was in my mind as, you know, there, you can have a 10 minute piece of music that feels interminably long, right? Or you can feel after an hour that it's just getting started. And it has mm -hmm. a lot to do with the, um, the rate of information and the way things are evolving and the mode of listening that the music rewards or encourages, right? So um, are you listening horizontally for what's going to happen next? Or are you listening more vertically in terms of feeling enveloped by a certain sonic location, right? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like you're inhabiting an installation or something. Um, mm -hmm. So within within that that general idea of durational work, um, there's also the idea of parameters that um, where you can really change focus. And I'll, I'll try to go ahead and get as specific as possible. So let's say pitch, you know, we, we most typically think of as, as a melody, you know, I've got a, a minor third, uh, uh, you know, a perfect fifth, um, and, and so forth. Um, one thing I like to do with, with it, this, um, sort of parametric, uh, evolution is starting with the familiar, moving towards the unfamiliar, um, which uh, is also a hypnotic induction technique in 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 a different uh, in a different realm. But um, for 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 what we're talking about here, it's moving from a familiar time scale to an unfamiliar time scale. So starting with a a melody, you know, the melody itself might not be familiar, but but okay, these are you know one pitch, another pitch, whether it's discrete or or sliding, um, mm -hmm. and then. Uh, let the pitch change uh, become slower and slower um, and smaller and smaller microtonal intervals until we stop hearing it as melodic movement and start hearing it as um, fluctuating beating patterns. So mm -hmm. I might have, I might have a drone pitch and another that's, you know, major third, second, major third, second. Um, and that might change to fluctuating between, 25 cents sharp and 15 cents sharp, which isn't a distinction that most people would hear melodically, at least not if you, you jumped right into it. But mm -hmm. um, if we're slowly arriving there from wider scales, we're experiencing the change of scale in an order of magnitude. So there's a point at which you get past a perceptual threshold where that stops feeling like melody and starts feeling like okay, we're changing this um, more somewhat somewhat less familiar um, area of pitch relationships where, okay, it doesn't necessarily sound like we're, we have a changing harmony here, but I've got this um, sonic phenomenon that's happening that's very clearly changing where, you know, um, uh, I might... Uh, I might share a, a quick example from from an accordion piece that does this, where you can hear not so much the um, the melody changing, uh, but the beating patterns between the two notes.
Great. Thank you for that. Uh, it's lovely to hear that piece. And, and I think that that'll give people an idea of, of, you know, how different your music is to, to what I at least you know, imagined it to be to begin with. And we've talked that you play all sorts of music, you know, from, from, you know, more, more traditional accordion music right. to, to really ambient stuff. I love this, you know, your, your phrase about starting from the familiar and going to the unfamiliar. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that I've grown to love more and more over the years is, is jazz music. And, um, yeah, you know, the classic jazz improvisation format where you start with a head, you know, a melody to begin with, and then move off into the realms of the unknown and then come back at the end. Um, you know, that, that really helps people kind of understand the basis for the improvisations. And uh, when I talk to people that don't love jazz music as much, you know, kind of explaining it a little bit helps. And I was going to ask you, but I think you've already answered my question, how you lead people into those spaces where they've kind of slowed their expectation down. So they're not expecting like a melody that, that they can grasp onto, but they're, they're in a listening state where really slow um, transformations can, can be deeply emotional and evocative. Um, have you got anything more to say about that or, or, Sure. Well, that's, I mean, that's a great question. And uh, this is one example of how I think um, working with, with musical materials can reward or, or sort of guide the listener toward that mode of, of listening, if it's maybe vertical listening or global listening or, or, or um, you know, some, some more particular distinctions among those, but um, uh if if you start with with and and again you know this is this is on the experimental side of of what I do for sure and I'm not starting out it doesn't start out as a pop song it's it's experimental from the beginning right but um uh the uh if we start with establishing this is a series of pitch relationships and then we slowly move it past that threshold into um here is a here is the underbelly or here is the sort of super magnified scale of pitch relationships, you know, the cellular molecular level. Um, then I think it becomes clear in a, in a beautiful way, the mm -hmm. relationship between those orders of magnitude. And that's where I really think that there is a relationship to, to modeling understanding of, of timescales on a, on a broader level, because if if we let that um, uh, that you know familiar pitch change represent you know our uh, what we perceive in our everyday life, well, underneath that we have these infinitesimal geologic changes happening around mm -hmm. us, which we might not be able to perceive, but they're happening and they're part mm -hmm. of the same interlocking system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think um, there's. In art, in all of its forms, when um, when it lasts a long time, there is a, for me anyway, there is a real um, sense of deep movement. So 
for example, I've been to theatrical performances that last eight hours. I went to a monologue that lasts 24 hours. Um, and you kind of enter into something like that. And, um, and the experience is, is transformational in a way that, that you know, if, if you listen to a single or even an album and you're in, involved for, for like 40 minutes, um, you might not get or, or it's more difficult to get. Um, I, th there was also, I wanted to come back to something we talked about a little earlier, which was um, sonification and the sense of engaging your ears, because this is something that, that I think is is really um, relevant at the moment, because as I mentioned in the introduction to this podcast, I'm really interested in exploring this idea of creating delightful, immersive experiences. And as we come out of this pandemic, you know, I'm interested in what will bring people back out of their houses and encourage them to interact with each other. And some of that, I think, is is creating experiences that are very difficult to have at home. Um, and one of the keys to that, I think, is multisensory experiences. And the, you know, the problem at the moment is that three of our five senses are in some ways dangerous. So our sense of touch, our sense of taste, and our sense of smell are kind of a little, you know, we've got to be a little nervous about those at the moment. And that only leaves our sense of sight and our sense of sound. And in general life and in, in business in particular, uh, in all aspects of life, in architecture and interior design, we really focus on our sense of sight. And, and that's kind of like we have five senses, but in most for most people, most of the days, your sense of sight is 80 or 90 percent of it. And the other four senses are the other 10 or 20 percent. And I think it's a really interesting time to amplify that sense of sound and really um, bring that to bear as a reinforcement to the, the sense of sight that we're all so well developed in. Yes, I think that uh, sort of multi-sensory experience comes into play even more with the kind of durational work and playing with with time time experience that we're talking about. Um, there's a great festival in Berlin um, every year. They have a, a, a the Long Now, which is a 24-hour concert of durational music, um, and uh, the Next played there. Uh, memorably a few years ago, uh, a fantastic, uh, fantastic durational jazz band. I, I have no idea if, if mm. that's an accurate description, but I know I love them. Um, but uh, so uh, the, the, the feeling of, um, of immersive durational music is often described as music as place, music as location. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that, uh, the element of physical location can can become a much larger part of the piece when you're not just sitting there for for 15 minutes but for or, or sitting there standing around snacking you know walking in the garden for for six seven 24 hours um mm -hmm. and so that necessarily becomes a part of the experience to 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 offer attention to right for the people creating the work 
that becomes a, a, an element of the experience that you absolutely have to take into account. Um, and these are things that, that uh, these are types of experiences that, that wouldn't translate to, to online events. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm, we're, I'm currently with, with Ghost Ensemble doing a series of online events, which um, I'm really excited about, but we're keeping them all to an hour um, or, or, or shorter as, as I think that's what people can, can stand with, with the format. In terms of the multi-sensory experience, you also get the opportunity for multi-level presentation, um, for engaging with multiple senses at, at once in a way that mm -hmm. can also, by, by layering those elements of the piece, you can also, again, sort of model this zooming among orders of magnitude that we were talking about in terms of, of timescales. So while this is happening in the sonic realm, and you can have so many, so many things, so many changing interlocking parameter gradients that where you already have like a very complex uh, uh, soundscape. Once you bring visual elements in, and even um, uh, even other other elements of of being uh, that that engage with the other senses, um, you can really. Uh, engage with those different levels of reality in a way that that brings in consciously and unconsciously connections among those parameters that sort of offer more intuitive modeling of how behavior can affect a whole system how how these different parameters might be obliquely related and that's another another mm -hmm. thing where where i think there's absolutely a lot about human interaction with the ecosystem that comes into play um hmm. Uh, one last thing I wanted to say about that is sonically experiencing things in person will always be different because of how we don't just listen with our ears, but with our whole bodies. So everyone mm -hmm. in the room mm -hmm. experiencing the same vibrations with their feet, with their skin, with their hair, um, and with their ears, not only contributes a, a sort of community connective element to the experience, but um, sort of unifies that experience in, okay, this room is part of the piece. The acoustics of this space are part of the piece. The lighting of this space is part of the piece. So even if we're just talking about sonic experience, there's a tremendous difference there, both in terms of being among others and in being in, in, in the space where, where that sound is happening. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think some of the most incredible um, concerts that I've ever seen have happened in non-traditional spaces. But I, there's so much I want to talk to you about, so I want to change topics a little bit. And uh, you mentioned them a couple of minutes ago, but the Ghost Ensemble, can you tell me more about them and about your work with them? Absolutely. So um, I was, I've, I'm thrilled that Ghost Ensemble is heading into our 10th season uh, this fall. I couldn't believe it when I did the math on that wow. <laughs> and then realized that was the case. Um, so uh, we started out in, in 2012. Um, uh, several of us met um, uh, through working with Pauline Oliveros. Um, uh, others I, I met in New York in the, in the 
contemporary classical music scene there, improvisation scene. Um, but uh, Ghost Ensemble is oriented foremost toward constant collaboration with innovators in experimental contemporary chamber music. So we're an instrumental ensemble. We've got flute, oboe, accordion, percussion, harp, viola, cello, and two contrabasses. Um, and uh, we we have a special relationship with with Pauline's music, which we perform frequently. And we have a new a new album coming up with a with a one of my favorite pieces of hers. Um, uh, I believe we have the premiere recording of it coming out. Um, but we also commission uh, composers each year to create new work with us. Um, uh, I do compose my own music for the ensemble, and the, there's a I'm working now on a new very long, uh, very exciting project for, for Ghost Ensemble. Uh, we're also working with some fantastic composers this coming year, Catherine Lamb, Mia Masayoka, Sky McClay, Lester St. Louis, um, a, a lot of composers that I'm really excited about working with. So um, broadly, we're, we're, we're creating new works of music with composers in contemporary classical experimental uh sound art improvised music um and everything that you might not exactly know where to place that's in that continent Mm. and where do you play typically that's uh something i'm hoping to expand so we've we've almost all of our concerts have been either in new york city or in california we've done a couple tours uh uh up and down California, but I'm, I'm hoping we can do, uh, much more touring throughout the U S and, uh, hopefully abroad in the, in the next few years. Excellent. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is that you, you know, you're involved in what we could call kind of niche areas of music. And, um, how do you manage to make a living? doing that or, or how you know what is your what does your life look like in that respect yes it's it's a really important question because um when when entering this career uh i hadn't the foggiest clue what the answer to that question might be and it was you know it was mm-hmm. hard to try to figure it out um so you know i think the more we the more we discuss it the better um uh I can separate that into my own my own uh, career and and ghost ensemble because the ensemble is set up as a nonprofit, so uh, we exist primarily um, through the the kindness of donors, uh, grants from foundations, and so forth. Um, uh, you know, we we sell tickets and we sell records, but um, you know that's a that's a tiny fraction of of the the operating budget. So that's that's a that's right. a traditional nonprofit. Uh, set up. Um, as far as my my uh, independent career as a composer performer, um, most of my income comes from teaching. Um, I do get a, a substantial um, uh, income from royalties for live performances of my music by by Ghost Ensemble and myself, as well as other other ensembles and performers. Um, a tiny 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 fraction of that amount um from uh um, royalties for broadcast streaming um mechanical 
Um, and um, and then I'll, I'll make a little bit here and there from performances, not so much in the past year, but uh, before that, um, mm -hmm. where uh, whether that's gigging with other performers or, or as a solo artist. Um, and I, I have some solo albums that I that I sell for for, again, a tiny, tiny fraction of the other numbers. Yeah. Right. And what about the other members of Ghost Ensemble? How do they make a living? That's a great question. So um, we're a happily eclectic bunch. Um, I, I, I like it that way that we're not all, you know, members of of an orchestra, of, a, of the same orchestra, uh, you know, having a side project. But we've got, um, you know, jazz performers, improvisers. Um, we've got, you know, uh, highly trained contemporary classical new music um, uh, performers. Um, we've, I mean, these are often the same people too, of course. Um, uh, a few of us uh, are, are teachers. I would say probably most of us teach in some capacity or another. I'm pretty sure most of the members of Ghost Ensemble are almost entirely building their career through music. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what I was going to ask. Do any of them have other other careers as well, or are they all professional musicians? I think I think we're all professional musicians in in the sense that that's our our primary our primary income stream and our our primary uh, primarily how we spend our our professional time. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So kind of I want to, to go on, particularly coming out of, um, well, we're living in this time where music has been, in my opinion, somewhat devalued in the sense that we've got this kind of all you can eat for 10 bucks a month type of attitude to music now, which leads to you know, a lot of questions about how musicians can, can make an ongoing living. You were talking about um, that you get um, significant revenue by being a composer and by live performances of your compositions, but that's not kind of available to everyone. Um, and when we were talking before, you had some interesting ideas about how musicians might create value around what they do in non-traditional ways. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you know your ideas and thoughts about how musicians can find ways of, of creating value and making a living? Sure. Um, so, first of all, it's tough, uh, and you know I've I've had a hard time struggling with these questions for for uh, uh, the past fifteen years. Um, so I, I I wouldn't be honest if I didn't start with start with that. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, one, you know, the, I, there are the platforms that I really like. You know, I think Bandcamp has been a great way to release music for me and, and for the ensemble over the past several years. Um, it 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 puts more control into the hands of artists where, you know, it's understood that, you know, uh, different kinds of music might might make sense with totally different streams of um, uh T totally different uh, revenue models and so forth, right? Um, where, you know, you might have one piece that's an hour long versus 60 pieces that are each a minute long. 
and and you know you can you can plan uh, make a different setup accordingly but um in terms of you know i i love putting together albums and connecting uh pieces of music with text and image and uh you know presenting a lot of the thoughts around the music is really important to me um and at the same time there are a lot of very good reasons that people are turning to to streaming and digital music because it's much more convenient you, you know if you lose your binder full of cds your music isn't all gone anymore the way it was when mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. i for one did that <laughs> a couple times yeah. um so uh i like the idea of of a digital release um and separately a a beautiful uh uh handcrafted thing that you can hold that has a lot in it that has a lot more in terms of text image tactile um uh, material so that you really have an object that you can enjoy um and i've got some some friends putting together great work along these lines um i mean there's there's more than we could possibly list but there are a lot of artists who are turning toward okay you can get the digital album and it's you know eight dollars or ten dollars or whatever and that's great uh if you want something you can hold in your hands we're gonna reward that by making it this like beautiful 64 page book with photos from the forest where we recorded this and and poems and you know the composer's manifesto and and all those sorts of things so i i love the idea of having there be multiple options uh i think that it's it's sensible that way um and and that there is an all-in, I want the real deal, I really want to engage with this work as as mm -hmm. a um, something that's available to really uh, to really get to the full meaning of of what this music is, because everything all the music that I love is is more um it is worth communicating about more than just through listening for a few minutes. There, there, there are always beautiful adjacent topics to explore through text music discussion. A number of things occur to me there. There's the concept of ritual in everyday life. So for example, I, I play vinyl a lot still. Um, and part of that is the sleeve notes, the artwork, Part of it is the, the the ritual of putting on a record and lowering the needle and sitting for a whole record. And I mean, that's when I'm relaxing in the evening. There's other times where when I'm in the car or I'm kind of um, listening to background music where that's not appropriate. But there are times where you really want to immerse yourself. And then there's this concept of um, that I think Kevin Kelly posited initially, but it might have been someone else, this thousand true fans um, that you may have come across. Yeah, you're smiling, so you probably have come across this idea that if a musician can engage a thousand true fans and have them pay $100 a year, then they can make a living. And I think it's somewhat flawed, but it's uh, it's kind of an interesting supposition. I, you know, A number of musicians have Patreon products projects or other forms of patronage um, and I think they're good and I, I, I'm a, a patron of a number of musicians but 
But also, I think it becomes kind of difficult because you end up either supporting everyone and ending up with a huge bill at the end of every month that you haven't anticipated because like like it's death by a thousand cuts you're you're paying you know ten bucks a month to to a hundred people and suddenly <laughs> you're a thousand bucks um and and so you know I'm really interested in the idea of um aggregators for that so that someone could say you know I want to contribute a hundred bucks a month to the arts how do I best do that and support the the musicians I like any thoughts around that and and the the balance between you know the true fan and the casual listener and and you know getting a, a balance yeah I think that's um I think that's a wonderful idea in terms of the the uh the ability to aggregate and say, okay, I have this amount and I'd like to support these folks and in, in, in a way that, that lets it not get out of hand. Um, I, I've certainly been following a lot of, um, a lot of the, uh, models that have emerged that, that, um, allow audiences to support artists at, at the level they're able, um, uh, with, with ghost ensemble, we use a you know a donation based model that of course is 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 related there are elements of the patronage contemporary neo neo patronage system that i'm that i'm uh that give me pause largely that um when there are a lot of different levels of of reward for how much people can afford to share it's not, it's not my favorite way of, of, of sorting what, what folks get to experience. Right. Um, I mean, there's no, there's no easy answer, but, um, you know, half of your thousand true fans might be able to afford more than a hundred and half of your thousand true fans might be able to afford, you know, 75 cents. Um, and, and so one thing I've gotten more and more interested in is donation-based ticketing, donation-based projects where, where you've got a sliding scale, you, you allow people to make that choice. I think people who love your music will be generous. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think that, you know, that's an option that um, I don't want to sound like I'm working for Bandcamp here, but it's, it's an option that they offer too, <laughs> right? You can get, do a sliding scale for you for your um for your um albums and i and i think that's valuable um so uh so i i like the idea that there can be different rates of support without without there being uh different amounts of what your audience member gets to gets to listen to or experience yeah i i i'm totally with you on that i that's something i've encountered a lot with podcasts and how people reward patrons and podcasts um and and music and also you know there's there's i mentioned true fan and casual listener but there's shades of gray in between that you know how do you reward someone who's who's more than the casual listener but but not like a devotee at a at an appropriate level and also, um, both you and I are friends with with Amanda Palmer, and you you played with the Dresden Dolls, and she um, she recorded this TED talk, The Art of Ask Me, and then did a book on it. and And she's you you know she's amazingly well positioned to 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 ask because 
She is totally extrovert. She lives her life kind of on the edge every single day. She's totally engaged with her audience every single day. And, you know, she, she's a model for, for someone who a Patreon is, is really good for. But for a more introverted kind of private musician, that may be a little more difficult. Any, any thoughts on that? Yes, for sure. And let me just say, um, I I don't have time for my whole Dresden Dolls story or stories, but um, yeah, they <laughs> oh, were. They'd be great. I'm sure they'd be. Great. Well, they're they're integral to to how I became an accordionist back when I was 17, 18, um, and I ended up going on tour with them a couple of times and playing accordion before the before the show. They were they had a whole circus of of performers that would. Um, you know, help, help, help make an amazing show. Um, and that was, that was formative for me. Um, if you're not Amanda Palmer, it's a tough thing to pull off, uh, the, the sheer yeah. extroversion that you're talking about. Um, Brian too, who was, uh, the, the drummer of the Dresden Dolls as a tremendously hard worker and, and extroverted, um, uh, impresario. Um, but I think that can, that can, do a few things to the artist that she'd better be prepared for. First of all, the pressure to constantly create new work, which I think for, for a lot of people happens anyway. And the pressure to, to keep, keep releasing it. So, so if you're painstakingly creating your concept album over the course of, of nine years, um, that system might not work as well for you. Um, But if you're Mm -hmm. releasing, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, a, a song from your kitchen table, um, uh and your fans are delighted by that then fantastic you can you can you can do that um uh with more consistency uh but it can make a lot of pressure to keep 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 at it and so that really depends on on what kind of work you're making and what your process is well i was going to say um it's it's interesting because some patron schemes like amanda's um you pay a certain amount for every piece of recorded music she puts out um and that's the way it's it's um, structured. Whereas other people's Patreon are a yearly fee, and I've actually seen for some people, it, it the yearly fee one. Those people don't put out stuff, and and you're you're kind of paying in a sense for nothing. You're paying to support them during those nine years, and um, you know it's kind of an interesting challenge. How do you? You know, you mentioned the pressure to put out stuff. That's if if it's a per track thing. But if it's a per year thing, it's almost like the seventies where bands got these enormous record advances and then kind of stayed in the studio for two years or something, kind of snorting coke and and coming in for an hour a day. And you know, kind of, I wonder about that with with a, a patron scheme of some sort. And I'm wondering how I can get in on that. Um, no, <laughs> uh, no, yes, I don't think. Um, I, I think it also depends enormously on the the audience, right? I mean, you mentioned I'm working in in w- what we can call niche territory, right? Let's let's be honest. Mm-hmm. You know, experimental shifting among time scales with detuned accordion beating patterns isn't gonna gonna hit hit the airwaves on every every fm station in the country so um (laughs) so you know i might have you know you know i the last time i did a a a, a crowdfunding campaign for for a solo project i think i got maybe 
50 or 60 donors, which is pretty good for a lot of those. Um, uh, and it, mm -hmm. it depends on how much each, each person's giving, but, um, uh, you know, if you're, if you're creating a certain kind of work, there will be limits to the amount that you can raise in that, in that fashion. Mm -hmm. I think one, one last subject I, I want to just mention before we finish is we were talking about streaming and we were talking about earlier about long duration pieces. And there's an issue there where you're paid per play of something. And that play could be, you know, a 30 second piece or it could be an eight hour piece. Any thoughts about how to fix that particular problem? Yes. Well, I know I, I haven't followed every, um, every line of the conversation, but I know that this is a huge conversation that, that people are having. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, of course there, there are arguments to be made in both directions, right? Um, there are, there are ambient artists who can put out, you know, six albums a year that are all two hours long. And there are, you know, maximalist, um, acousmatic artists who, who take a painstaking year to, to create five minutes of, of incredible uh, yeah. uh, work. Um, so, uh, as someone who tends to be on the long side, I don't want to say, well, of course, I think it should be, it should be set up in a way that benefits me. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, if it's variable, if it's flexible, if there's a model that, that, that considers these things as separate types of work, which they are, um, I think that would be the bottom line of, of creating a, a sensible, fair landscape for that. Great. Well, Thank you very much. We've covered a lot of really interesting topics here. Um, is, is there any? Do you have any last thoughts? Anything else you'd like to say before we end? Well, uh, I'm 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 delighted to have uh, been able to talk with you today, and I've I've been been listening with deep interest to the series. Um, uh, I suppose I might plug Ghost Ensemble's album, which is coming very soon. I think we might be able to share a, a brief clip from a, a, a Pauline Oliveros work that we'll be releasing. I hear. I am. I receive what is. listening. No argument.
Returning to where the earthworm also sings. Deepest listening is for that which has not yet sounded. Receiving that which is most unfamiliar. Learning its space-time sound silence dance. Interacting with that which is most familiar. Listening until the newest is learned. Making space for the yet unborn through stillness. Stillness where the subtlest motion dances so swiftly that perception hones to the tiniest possible point. Disappearance. If people are interested in hearing more, um, they can they can go to ghostensemble.org. Um, uh, join our newsletter. Do you have a, a album title and a release date yet? Uh, the title is Mountain Air, um, and the release date is not set in stone. We've had we've had you know manufacturing surprises in the past that have caused us to change release dates, but we're we're aiming for July. July, okay. And how do people get in touch with you, Ben, if they'd like to to contact you? Well, um, the, uh, the ensemble website is ghostensemble.org. My personal website is benrichtermusic.com. And if uh, people want to send me an email, it is ben at ghostensemble.org. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been fascinating to me in, in ways that, that I kind of wouldn't have fully expected before this. And Thank you so much to everyone for listening to, to this episode. As always, please let us know what you think. Rate us on your podcast platform of choice. Send us comments. Tell us who you'd like us to be talking to. And please come back and listen to more episodes. Thanks so much. <laughs>